0: You're listening to the podcast of Church of the Holy Cross in Popper Bluff, Missouri. A community of faith learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at holycrosspb.org. Holy Spirit. Amen. Does anybody else get uncomfortable when Jesus talks about money? Does anyone else squirm a little bit when we have one of these gospel readings about stewardship over our finances and resources? I want Jesus to stay away from money. I want Jesus to stay away from politics. I want him to stick to the more comfortable and respectable topics, things like prayer, the golden rule parables about God's unconditional love. I don't come to church to hear anyone challenge my financial or my political beliefs. But unfortunately, Jesus talks about money and about politics all the time. He was an intensely political figure, and his teachings are full of lessons designed to challenge and to subvert the government and the rule of the Roman Empire. We heard one just a few weeks ago. It was the one about paying your taxes and give to Caesar what's to Caesar and give to God what what is God's. And we heard uh, Mike Malone preach about uh, the subversive meaning of that, that if this coin belongs to Caesar, then go ahead and give it to him, I guess. But everything belongs to God. Give everything else to God. And as my New Testament professor in seminary, Warren Carter, used to say, in the ancient Roman world, you didn't get crucified for praying a lot. You might get crucified for teaching your followers to pray for God's kingdom to come and for God's will to be done because that would imply that Rome's kingdom is not supreme and Rome's will is not being done. And Jesus talks about money all the time. And to make matters worse, in his teachings about money, Jesus pretty much makes it clear that money is intrinsically and inextricably tied to evil. In Matthew chapter 19, we have the story of the rich young man who comes to Jesus and asks what he must do to gain an eternal life. Jesus tells him to follow the commandments do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. I have done all these things, the man replies. What do I still lack? And Jesus answers, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And the gospel says that the man goes away sad because he has great wealth. Jesus tells his disciples that it is hard for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is telling us in no uncertain terms that wealth keeps us from God. That is disturbing because compared to the culture that this gospel was written in, Every one of us here and every one of us listening this morning is wealthy beyond all measure. We are the modern stand-ins for the rich young man in that story. But honestly, I can kind of get to a place where I can come to terms with Jesus' warnings about money. I can accept that God has a preferential option for the poor and that the Christian duty for those of us who have means is to do everything in our power to care for those who do not have means. But then we get to today's gospel reading, and Jesus flips his previous advice on its head. Instead of warning about money and about the love of money, Jesus tells a story about a master who punishes a slave for not making money. The master goes on a long journey, and before he leaves, he summons his three slaves and gives them each an unbelievably massive amount of money to take care of while he is gone. Each one of them is given at least one talent, which we're talking about tens of thousands of dollars in today's money. Two of them invest the money, and they make more money for their master. In fact, they double their return. The third slave is afraid that he will lose the money that he's been entrusted with So he digs a hole in the ground, puts his in the ground, hides it there until the master returns. And when the master gets back, the slave gives him the money he left behind, all safe and sound. Here is what you gave me. I've taken good care of it. It's all here. Count it. I didn't lose a thing. But instead of being treated like a maybe not very creative and not very industrious, but otherwise sensible steward of his master's money, this slave is berated and cast into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, burying money in a hole in the ground may seem bizarre and even comical to us, but there is actually a section in the Talmud that suggests this very thing. The Talmud is the collection of rabbinic sayings and interpretations of the Torah laws that was completed between 200 and 500 A.D., there's an episode in the Talmud in which the rabbis suggest that the best way to safeguard your money is to dig a hole in the ground, stick your money in it, and bury it for safekeeping. Now, this was written down a couple hundred, 300, even 400 years after the Gospel of Matthew was written, but it was probably based on on an earlier, rabbinic, an earlier rabbinic interpretations of Torah laws and not written down until later. So perhaps this was a rabbinic tradition that Matthew's audience might have known. Perhaps they thought that by burying his talent, the slave was doing the sensible and the responsible thing. A few years ago, Tracy and I took a group of Poplar Bluff High School choir students to New York for a few days. And we were visiting the Statue of Liberty and about to get on the ferry. And I had warned students that they were going to be going through airport-grade security to get into the uh, onto the ferry to go to Liberty Island. And I had one student who forgot until we were at the security station that he had a pocket knife in his pocket. So he wasn't sure what to do. He knew that was going to be either going to be confiscated or he wasn't going to be allowed to go. So he said to me, "Hang on just a minute." And He ran to the back of the line. He found a bush. We were in Liberty State Park and on the New Jersey side, so it was kind of a wooded area. He found a bush. He, with his hands, dug a hole in the ground, stuck his pocket knife in there, covered it back up, kind of underneath the bush. We went got on the ferry. We came back. His pocket knife was right where he had left it. It was the safe thing to do. Now, even though we are separated by distance and by the magic of a Facebook live stream this morning, I can tell what some of you are thinking. You're thinking that the parable of the talents is really not about money at all. It's really an allegory about putting to good use the gifts that God has given us. And I actually agree with you, even though I think that it is dangerous to just chalk up to allegory any story in the Bible that we find problematic or troubling. I think that most of Jesus' sayings about money are actually about money. I think that the rich young man couldn't enter the kingdom of God simply because he was rich. He was too attached to his worldly means and not able to give them up. I don't think Jesus was messing around with his words there. I think he meant what he said, and he said what he meant. But it is hard for me to believe that in today's story, Jesus is really telling us that God's will for us is that we make as much money as we possibly can, or perhaps even worse, that the duty of a servant is to make as much money as he or she can for his or her boss. If that's our interpretation, we start treading dangerously into prosperity gospel territory. The Prosperity gospel is this idea that God wants us to be wealthy, God wants us to be prosperous. And if we follow God's will, then we will be. And the reason I think that that is theological nonsense is because the flip side is if you do not have means, then that means somehow you are not following God's will. And I'm not willing to accept that that is the meaning of this gospel. I mentioned last week that our gospel readings this month tend to be apocalyptic. In the New Testament, apocalyptic stories are ones that remind us that sometime in our future, the Son of Man... Jesus will return to earth and will demand from us an accounting of how we have done while he was gone. I think that it is probably pretty obvious that the master in today's story is a stand-in for Christ, and we are the slaves. Jesus is reminding us that he is leaving us with certain gifts and responsibilities, and that if we don't use those gifts and those responsibilities to advance God's kingdom, there will be quite literal hell to pay. A few years ago I was the faculty liaison to the Academic Booster, team, Academic Booster Club at the high school. Our main function was to provide mini grants to teachers at the high school who had things they wanted for their classes and their classrooms that their budgets would not cover. One teacher asked for a grant that would give every student in one of her classes a small amount of money. I think it was ten dollars maybe fifteen dollars. The students were to use this money in some way to better or to serve their community, and then they were to come back to school and write about their experiences. They were given money with no explicit instructions, no oversight, and no strings except that they were supposed to use it to somehow make their community a better place. I want to turn for just a minute away from our gospel reading and look at today's epistle passage. Paul's letters are often considered to be among the earliest parts of the New Testament, and 1 Thessalonians was likely one of Paul's earliest letters. It's possible this is the earliest text of the New Testament. Jesus had walked on earth only a handful of years, a decade or two, before Paul wrote this letter. So Paul's audience expected that Jesus' return to earth would happen at any time, any moment, any day. They believed it to be imminent. And apparently, they've been debating what it will look like when Jesus comes back. How will we know? What will be the signs? Paul basically dismisses this discussion, telling them that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You're not going to know when it's going to happen. But he tells them to stay vigilant to do the things that God expects them to do and to put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. In other words, if you want to be found worthy when Christ returns, then hold to the three essentials, faith, hope, and love. And he ends by saying, Therefore encourage one another and build up each other as indeed you are doing. I hear Paul saying, I don't know when or how Jesus is going to come back, but I do know that in the meantime, we can love one another and we can support one another. There are some wonderfully vivid depictions of hell in literary history. Certainly one that comes to mind is Dante's Inferno and the idea that sinners are punished in hell with the natural consequences of their sins. The lustful are tossed on eternal storms. Politicians are boiled in tar. Uh, The devil himself is encased in a cold, loveless lake of ice. But I think that the most devastating image of hell in literature is one contained in a brief episode in the Charles Dickens classic, A Christmas Carol. When the ghost of Jacob Marley visits his old business partner, Scrooge, the author says, that Scrooge fell upon his knees and clasped his hands before his face. Mercy, he said, dreadful apparition. Why do you trouble me? Man of the worldly mind, replied the ghost, do you believe in me or not? I do, said Scrooge, I must, but why do spirits walk the earth and why do they come to me? It is required of every man, the ghost returned, that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow men and travel far and wide, and if that spirit goes not forth in life, it is condemned to do so after death. It is doomed to wander through the world, oh woe is me, and witness what it cannot share, but might have shared on earth and turn to happiness. What if the servant who buries the talent in the ground is wrong because he missed an opportunity to use his gift to bring healing or happiness to some corner of the world. We have been given resources. We have resources as individuals. We also have resources as a church and as a community. How are we using those resources to advance God's kingdom? Are there ways in which we are simply digging holes in the ground and not using the resources God has given us to further the kingdom? I sometimes like to think about how I work in a notoriously underpaid profession and that my work as an educator is somehow a sacrifice that I'm willing to make for my students and for my community and for my world. And certainly teachers are paid less than other professionals in other fields that require similar levels of education. But then I always have to stop and remind myself that my wife and I bring home well over the median income for Butler County. This means that I am significantly better off than the families of most of my students. How am I using these resources? Am I using my resources to contribute to God's kingdom? Or am I simply digging a hole in the ground and leaving it there? We are a predominantly white, predominantly middle-class to upper-class congregation. This status means that we have a level of influence and resource and power that another church might not have, let's say a predominantly black congregation or a church that serves mostly homeless or indigent congregants. Do we use that influence to serve our community and to advance God's kingdom? Or do we dig a hole in the ground and leave it there? Do we decide that we don't have the energy or the power to advocate for justice for the poor or to combat racism in our community? Or do we decide to take the resources we have and turn them outward, using them to serve the poorest, the most vulnerable, the least of our neighbors, the ones who just like us are made in the image of God and the ones for whom just like us Jesus chose to die. What would it look like if we take the resources that God has made us stewards of and we use them to earn an increase for God's kingdom? Amen.